Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. This episode is sponsored by Now. You can stream House of the Dragon, the new chapter in the Game of Thrones saga, on Now today. They have a huge catalogue of great shows, but House of the Dragon is phenomenal stuff for history fans. It's based on George R. R. Martin's book, Fire and Blood, House of the Dragon, and the story takes you back 200 years before the events we all watched in Game of Thrones to another critical moment in the history of Westeros. The Targaryen family are at the height of their power, ruling Westeros from the Iron Throne. However, when the question of succession comes up, this plunges the kingdom into a civil war known as the Dance of the Dragons. The story that follows is the usual edge-of-the-seat stuff that made Game of Thrones what it was. You can watch House of the Dragon on now, today. You also can access the incredible catalogue of shows they have, including the original entire eight series of Game of Thrones. So if you're like me and you want to re-watch again, or you're late to the party and you want to find out what it's all about, it's all waiting for you on now, today. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire. Myths surrounding dragons are intriguing. They exist in most societies across the globe. Even places and people separated from each other by thousands of years or vast oceans still share stories in common about these strange beasts. So in this podcast I'm asking the strange question, are dragons real? Or perhaps a better way of saying it, How real are dragons? Because as you're about to hear, myths surrounding dragons predate organised religion and spiritual beliefs of any kind. They're possibly even older than modern humans. So something clearly has to have inspired these myths. And if not an actual animal, I want to find out what exactly that was. To solve this historical mystery will require venturing extremely far back into our past to try and locate where this strange myth first emerged. Dragons, strange as this is going to sound, do have a history. They pop up in the strangest of places and at times you would least expect to find them. For example, in 793, the first known Viking raid took place when a monastery known as Lindisfarne in the Kingdom of Northumbria in the northeast of England was attacked and pillaged. That ushered in what must have been one of the most terrifying periods in Northern European history. The following decades saw hundreds of similar raids, impossible to predict, but were devastating in their effect. So when a scribe, whose work it was to record the notable deeds of his time, wrote his entry for 793, he, as you might imagine, described the attack in detail. But then he also took time to add these strange words to his account. This year came... Dreadful forewarnings over the land of the Northumbrians, terrifying the people most woefully. These were immense sheets of light rushing through the air, and whirlwinds and fiery dragons flying across the firmament. These words were first written around 1200 years ago, and have led to intense debate as to what the reference to dragons here means. If it was an isolated mention, we could just dismiss it as unusual, 
but it's not the only historical reference to dragons and the more we find, the more intriguing the picture becomes. For example, the Annals of Ulster make a few cryptic references to dragons as well. In the year 746, a dragon makes an appearance sandwiched between pretty normal events. That reference is actually written in a way that almost makes you think it's a normal occurrence. The anonymous monk who wrote the Annals at that point gives us this account. Dragons were seen in the sky. We could perhaps dismiss all these accounts and say that monks of the 7th and 8th century in Ireland and Britain were supping on a particularly fine vintage of mead, but accounts like this are not just limited to medieval Ireland, Britain or even Europe for that matter. Just over a century later, Abhichena, the famous Persian polymath and philosopher writing in Central Asia, was pretty emphatic that dragons were actually real. While admitting he had never seen one, he was convinced that they did exist further east in India. And to complicate matters even further, these historical accounts from the Middle Ages are by no means the oldest references to dragons. In fact, they appear in most major cultures throughout history. There are references to dragons in both the Old and New Testaments of the Bible. They're also present in what is regarded as one of the oldest surviving pieces of literature, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is about 4,000 years old. Their geographical spread is equally, if not even more, perplexing. As I mentioned at the outset, there's evidence of dragons in writing or artwork from nearly all continents, Antarctica being the exception for obvious reasons. But dragons exist both in Europe and the Americas prior to regular contact in the 15th century, while they're also depicted in isolated island societies such as Hawaii. They're also present at the very dawn of human civilization as well. An excavation in northern China turned up a jade carving of a dragon that's around 7,000 years old. I think you're getting the idea at this point. Dragons, or dragon mythology at least, is not a regional concept to one part of the globe, but rather seems to accompany humans wherever we go and have been with us for a very long time. Now this has naturally left people perplexed. Where did this myth come from? Why are they mentioned in historical accounts? And what can explain their presence all across the globe? And perhaps most importantly, is there a deeper meaning of dragon mythology? Now, explanations to these questions are wide and varied, but they tend to fall into one of two camps. Most argue that even though they exist in completely separate parts of the world, dragon mythology is essentially just a creation of the human mind. However, a small minority do claim it's based on an actual beast that either existed in the past or possibly even still exists today. The latter of these claims, that the mentions and references of dragons and dragon mythology are actually based on an animal of some kind or another, is more popular than I would have expected before I started researching the topic. So bizarre as this claim is, I want to look at the advocates of this idea first before looking at what I think is the best and more interesting explanation behind dragon mythology. So the idea that dragons exist, or existed, is not by any means new. It was common enough in the medieval period. But given the world we live in today, it's not going to come as any surprise to you when I say that it's not very hard to find people online who claim that dragons either existed or even exist today. In fact, after starting to research this podcast, it didn't take long before the Google algorithm based on other people's search activity, started to suggest I might look for things like is there dragons in China, are dragons real, and where do dragons exist? Strange as this may be, I shouldn't really have been surprised. It's probably not even close to the weirdest thing any of us will read online this week. 
However, the idea is not just reliant on voices from the Middle Ages or people inhabiting the fringes of the internet. It also finds traction among more well-established voices as well. The fantasy writer Richard Carpenter, for example, believed dragons once existed. You probably don't recognise that name, but if you were a child of any point between 1970 and the year 2000, you probably were raised on TV shows that he had a hand in creating. Anyway, during a 1993 interview, the subject of dragons came up, and Carpenter took the journalist aback when he said, I believed they existed, and became extinct in human history. The last wolf was killed in England in 1812, and I think the last dragon was slaughtered in Europe, probably Turkey in the 12th or 13th century. People ask why we haven't found dragon bones, but we haven't found wolf bones. And dragons would be hollow, so they could fly. While Carpenter is perhaps unusual in that he actually gives a date and a place, most of these theories are very vague on specifics, he never explains why Turkish historians have never shared what would be a pretty sensational chapter in their history. And for what it's worth, these dates that he mentions, the 12th and 13th centuries, coincide with the Crusades, so there was intense scrutiny on that part of the world at the time. Now, while we can put Carpenter to one side, it is worth saying that claims of sightings of dragons have gained traction in wider society from time to time. Later 1933 and into early 1934, for example, saw a sharp rise in sightings of dragons and similar creatures. This was spurred on by the supposed sighting of the Loch Ness Monster in 1933. But this, like other stories about dragons actually existing, or even existing at some point in the past, collapse under the mildest of scrutiny. There never has been a shred of actual evidence ever produced. However, over the last century, a truly intriguing theory that stretches back perhaps millions of years helps us understand where dragon mythology comes from and why it's so widespread across the globe. Indeed, as we're about to hear... It's not simply possible to dismiss dragon mythology as a story invented to entertain our ancestors around fires on dark evenings. Dragons, or at least the concept or idea of them, is actually crucial in terms of the human story and our history on this planet. And while the fantasy writer Richard Carpenter was clearly way off the mark, another writer, who you'll be more familiar with, will help point us in the right direction. So in 2011, George R.R. Martin, who you will know as the author whose books gave us Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, was asked what dragons represented in his books. Now his answer was intriguing. He replied that dragons are representative of nuclear weapons and the nuclear deterrent, given that like nuclear weapons, they have immense power in his books. However, I have no doubt that George R.R. Martin also recognised that in comparing dragons to nuclear weapons, he was on the same path that stretches back deep through history and leads us back to that monk in the 790s writing about the Vikings at Lindisfarne and mentioning dragons in that context. But it also goes far beyond the Vikings of the 8th century into the earliest stages of our history and a theme that seems to link dragons in nearly all societies. Because Martin, in this statement, cut to the core of what dragons seem to represent throughout our history, and that's fear, anxiety and danger. While he saw them as representative of an immense threat posed by nuclear weapons, it's not that different from the scribe in medieval England who referenced dragons when he described the Viking attack. Both represent fear and anxiety for the people at the time. 
While specific associations and meanings change and the detail of dragons can vary from place to place, at their root they seem to always symbolise deep-seated fears and anxieties. Now while this is not groundbreaking to suggest this, the more interesting question is though, why did humans attach fear to this mythical beast and why do most human societies have this same creature in their mythology? And then also, when did it emerge? It certainly can't be simply explained away by people sharing the same story and passing it on and over time it spreads across the globe because, as we've seen already, it existed in societies that had no contact with each other, for example, medieval Europe and the Mayan societies of South America. And before anyone even goes there, this is not proof of regular contact between Europe and the Americas prior to Columbus. It would be pretty bizarre if these societies chose to share one single thing, the myth of the dragon, but not other practical aspects of their societies, like metalworking. Anyway, What the presence of dragons across the globe does indicate is that we need to venture much further back into our remote past to try and find the origin of this myth. Because when you watch House of the Dragon on now, odd as it may sound, this may well be not only a retelling of one of the oldest human stories, but also a story that's intrinsic to you as a human and may even be older than the human species. To follow the dragon back through its immensely long history, we need to first define exactly what we're talking about. Today, we tend to have a pretty singular view of what dragons look like. I think we all probably go to a beast that's portrayed in Game of Thrones or House of the Dragon as an archetypical dragon. Basically, they're snake-like with wings and legs. However, when we look at depictions of dragons in the past, they tend to vary more. The universal trait is that they're, I guess in a word, reptilian. Most are snake-like, some have legs, some don't, some have wings, but others don't. Indeed, the ability to breathe fire, which we often assume is the defining feature of a dragon, is not present in all representations at all. These type of dragons do exist in the past, but there are many other forms as well. The Irish dragon, for example, was pretty different. Referred to as the paste, it was usually depicted in the shape of a sea serpent, It's no surprise that this might be reminiscent of the Loch Ness Monster in Scotland, which shared similar mythological traditions to Ireland. The Paist, the dragon in this part of the world, did not breed fire either, and actually tended to inhabit watery caves, and was often seen as the gatekeeper to the underworld. In other cultures, though, dragons take different forms. In the Book of Job in the Bible, the dragon-like beast, the Leviathan, is a sea monster as well, but it can breathe fire. While in the New Testament, a dragon appears in the Book of Revelation and is a seven-headed beast. In China, where the earliest depictions of the dragon can stretch back as we've seen 7,000 years, they are slightly different to their European counterparts and are often seen in a more benign light. However, while they may vary considerably in terms of their features, their core form is what actually helps us understand where this myth came from. Many academics interested in this area, and now some of these people even call themselves dragonologists, have pointed to dragons being representative of snakes and deadly reptiles such as crocodiles, and that this explains why we have them so closely linked with fear in our heads. It would make total sense that early humans developed a mythology around a predator that posed the dangers snakes and reptiles did. Even in the 21st century, snakes remain one of the biggest killers of humans in the animal kingdom. 
The World Health Organization estimates that somewhere between 81,000 and 138,000 people die every year from snake bites alone. Crocodiles do trail well behind, killing only around 1,000 people. But we can assume when humans lived much closer to nature, the numbers would have been far higher. However, while we're making progress in terms of understanding dragons and where they come from, the question still remains, when did it emerge? For example, this theory that they represent a fear we had of snakes could not have emerged after the point when humans had arrived in Ireland, around 12,000 years ago. As I mentioned earlier, dragons do exist in Irish folklore in the form of the paste. However, if dragons was a representation of fears of snakes and crocodiles, this would not really make much sense in Ireland, given there are neither snakes nor crocodiles on the island. Snakes, despite St. Patrick, and we'll get to him in time, did not exist in Ireland at any point since humans landed on these shores. This suggests that when humans reached Ireland, they brought this mythology with them, perhaps shaping it to fit the local environment, but nonetheless, they had the mythology in a pretty coherent form when they arrived. So we need to continue on our journey back past 12,000 years ago to try and track the dragon's origin down. Answering when precisely the concept of the dragon emerged has actually drawn the attention of the greatest thinkers of the last 100 or 150 years. By the early 20th century, the origins of dragons was provoking increasing interest as people began to realise that they existed in most cultures across the globe. Those looking at how we had developed as a species began to see dragons as somehow relevant because their presence in all societies indicated that this mythology must have been with us as a species from a very early period. One of the founding fathers of modern psychology, Carl Jung, argued that they actually were a representation of our reptilian brain from a long distant chapter in our evolution. In 1936, he claimed, The dragon represents not only a human past, say the law and convictions of a thousand years ago, those of warm-blooded animals. The dragon goes back much further. Now, this was developed on by Carl Sagan, the cosmologist. I think it's worth just mentioning at this point that if you're not familiar with Carl Sagan or Carl Jung, for that matter, they're both really respected and highly thought of thinkers. Jung, as I've mentioned, is a founding father of modern psychology, while Sagan is perhaps best known for his award-winning TV series Cosmos, while the book where he forwarded his ideas on dragons, titled The Dragons of Eden, won a Pulitzer Prize. The reason I bring this up is because these ideas are pretty out there. Anyway, in that book, Sagan argued that dragons reflect fears from deep in our evolutionary past, long before anatomically modern humans evolved. He argued they possibly even represented some genetic memory of dinosaurs. So this takes a little bit of explaining because, on the face of it, it doesn't really seem plausible. So humans, as in Homo sapiens, only evolved around 300,000 years ago. But dinosaurs went extinct around 60 million years ago, leaving a pretty substantial gap in between. However, Sagan argues that it's possible, or certainly he questions if it is possible, that some evolutionary ancestor of ours, a primate, basically an ape, who walked the earth and lived in fear of dinosaurs, essentially planted a seed in what would become the human brain, and that this was passed down over what would be millions of generations through evolution and eventually took the form that we recognise as a dragon. 
I think the best thing I can do is let Sagan explain some of this in his own words. Could there have been man-like creatures who actually encountered Tyrannosaurus rex? Could there have been dinosaurs that escaped the extinctions in the late Cretaceous period? He went on to make a point that I found intriguing. Could the pervasive dreams and common fears of monsters, which children develop shortly after they are able to talk, be evolutionary vestiges of quite adaptive baboon-like responses to dragons and owls. Given the amount of caveats in this though, it's clear that Carl Sagan was not staking his reputation on this theory. But he's not the only one to speculate along these lines. Others have wondered why children fear monsters even though they have no memory or experience of them. One of the founders of evolutionary theory, Charles Darwin, pondered similar thoughts in a more general way, wondering could dragons or similar monsters represent very old fears rooted in a lived experience of a very, very distant past. May we not suspect that the vague but very real fears of children, which are quite independent of experience, are inherited effects of real dangers and abject superstitions during ancient savage times. This is pretty crazy to think about, that the origin of the dragon, if these guys are correct, is actually older than our species. I don't know enough about human evolution or how our brain works to even comment one way or another, but while it's not perfect, it certainly seems more likely than the idea they once existed and that the last of them is currently sustaining a tourist industry at Loch Ness in Scotland. Naturally, there have been critics though of this theory but many of these have sought to hone it down rather than dismiss it outright. Indeed, in 2001, the American anthropologist Dr. David Jones suggested the origins of dragons lies in our evolutionary experiences, but he didn't go quite all the way back to dinosaurs. Instead, he argued that dragons, at least the winged and four-legged variety, represented the greatest predators some distant primate ancestor of ours faced. Building on this, he argued that to survive, they had to be extremely alert to raptors, that's things like eagles, large cats and snakes. When he's referring to large cats there, he is, of course, talking more like a lion than a tabby that sprawled on your couch. But in this theory, the defining feature of these three animals, the wings of the raptor, the body of the snake and the legs of the cat combined to create a dragon. He would also claim that the fire-breathing aspect may reflect the warm breath of the large cats that hunted humans potentially. But personally, I'm not so convinced of this aspect of it. But again, I'm going to let him explain this in his own words. The origin of the impulses that would lead to the dragon must have begun about 35 to 50 million years ago when ancestral primates evolved in dangerous company of raptors, snakes and cats. Now usually I trade in history that stretches back a century or two. At times I do venture back before the year 1000. But this stuff makes me dizzy to even think about. I think if I follow Jones correctly, he's not claiming that primates or apes sat around sharing stories of dragons. But they became incredibly alert to these threats, the cat, the raptor and the snake which was obviously crucial in terms of our evolution because it allowed them to survive, given the threats these animals posed. The images, though, of these animals embedded themselves deeply in our subconscious and formed the image of the dragon, which naturally then came to represent threats and fears in a more general way. If Carl Sagan, Charles Darwin or David Jones are even just on the right path, but perhaps out by a few million years here or there, this suggests that dragons are kind of integral to our evolution. 
After reading this, it transformed the way I saw dragons. David Jones has this grey paragraph where he compares dragons to the shadow of a tree. What's actually only real is the tree, or in this instance, the fears that cast the image of the dragon rather than the dragon itself. I think this gets to the root of the history of dragons. What form it takes is not really the point, but rather what it represents. It explains how fears associated with a lion of one million years ago became the Viking of a thousand years ago or nuclear power of today. If this is correct, then the actual time period the image of the dragon and its mythology emerged is going to be impossible to tell. But at the very latest, we have to assume it must have been crystallised into a form that we would recognise while humans were still concentrated on the African continent somewhere before 200,000 years ago. Then, as we, now when I say we, I mean humans, began to spread out across the globe and started to separate out into different continents, our remote ancestors carried this myth of the dragon with them, a reflection of a lost memory of our battle with rivals in the evolutionary process. Stories of dragons being retold either around campfires deep in our history or modern retellings in the form of House of the Dragon is actually our oldest family heirloom. It reminds us of our earliest days and indeed possibly even recalls more distant ancestors before we were even human. This general theory fits well then in terms of explaining how dragons vary from place to place. So for example, when humans arrived in Ireland probably around 12,000 years ago and found an environment with none of the predators mentioned above that formed the dragon imagery, the image of the dragon may have seemed superfluous. However, it was far too deeply embedded in our psyche to simply die away and instead it was adapted to the new local surroundings. While there may have been no snakes, the eels that could be found in rivers and lakes may have given rise to the paste, the sea serpent. In other regions, it's possible the discovery of dinosaur bones perhaps shaped the more classic form the dragon has taken in other places, the winged and legged beast. We can possibly see this in the writing of the Greek historian Herodotus in his work The History, written a mere two and a half thousand years ago, when he said, There is a place in Arabia, situated very near the city of Buto, to which I went, on hearing of some winged serpents. And when I arrived there, I saw bones and spines of serpents in such quantities as it would be impossible to describe. The form of the serpent is like that of a water snake, but he has wings without feathers, and as like as possible to the wings of a bat. While these theories offer the most convincing suggestion about where dragon mythology comes from, the stories it has latched onto naturally changes from place to place and over time. So, for example, in Europe and Western Asia, the dragon became the representation of ultimate evil, particularly after Christianity spread across the region. In the Christian understanding of the world as one of good and evil, it was hardly any surprise that the dragon came to represent evil and Satan himself. The book of Revelation, the last of the New Testament, is explicit about this in these lines. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Over time, this expanded, and paganism, the great rival of Christianity, up through the early Middle Ages, was increasingly portrayed by the dragon. It's no surprise that the story of St. Patrick, supposedly ridding Ireland of snakes, is in fact a metaphor for Christianity 
replacing paganism. This brings us almost full circle and back to our friend in England describing that Viking raid on Lindisfarne and mentioning that dragons were a portent of their arrival. By linking the Vikings to the dragon, it conveyed the fear that they had induced. This has continued right into the modern era. While researching this episode, I came across adverts that portrayed cancer as a dragon in the early 20th century. Ultimately though, if Sagan and Jones are correct, and the origins of the dragon lie far deep in our past, you'd have to think that these regionalised interpretations and associations don't really matter much. Any individual society, be it the West or China today, Rome or Persia of antiquity, are a mere twinkle in the dragon's eye. So the next time a dragon pops up on your TV screen and you have a strange, perhaps unsettling sensation, that's possibly the stirrings of a time far beyond your memory when some distant ancestor was hunted by predators. It's the latest retelling of what is perhaps the oldest story in history, one potentially even older than ourselves. Now before I go, don't forget to check out House of the Dragon on Now. It's a phenomenal story that transcends any one genre. It's a character-driven narrative set in a kind of medieval world that appeals to history fans like us. But then, of course, there is also our oldest friend, the dragon, there too. 